We'll stand as you are able for the reading of God's word, coming from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. That was a wonderful prayer to sing together as we think about God's word and wanting to love his word and know his word and trust his word. So let's hear his word now. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. The radical necessity and the extraordinary reality of the new birth. That is the message this morning. No message could be more important today. Atheistic uh, scholars tell us the new birth is a fiction. Jesus here is saying it's a fact. Culture is telling us that you can be a Christian and not be born again, Jesus says here that you cannot even enter the kingdom of God at all unless you are born again. Theologians marginalize the new birth to um, relatively insignificant categories. Jesus makes it absolutely essential. Churches make the new birth something that happens to you at baptism as a child. Jesus here insists it can only be received through personal faith in Him. In other words, we live at a time when there are many Nicodemuses around. Both in our culture and our churches, we are Nicodemus. We're confused as to why Jesus would be so countercultural, so radical. 
Why would he do um, this cleansing of the temple that we looked at a couple of weeks ago? Why would he throw out the money changers? Why would he come with reformation zeal and this resurrection power? What, 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 what makes him so enthusiastic about this? What, what makes it such a big deal? Why is he taking all these pains to, to be countercultural against the religion of the day, against the powers that be of the day? Well, why is it such a big deal? We're confused as to all this. We are Nicodemuses. And Jesus is telling him and us, our culture, our church at large, that life and death, heaven and hell, all hang upon the radical necessity as well as the extraordinary, joyful, beautiful, amazing reality of this spiritual new birth. So that's how I'm setting up this morning. And if that is the right way to set it up, we need to know who this Nicodemus was. We're told here that he was a member of the ruling council, a ruler of the Jews. Now, Israel, of course, under, at the time was under Roman occupation, um, but uh, still the uh, ruling council had considerable delegated authority. And if this ruling council was the council that is known as the Sanhedrin, then it would have had, at this time, actual governing authority over the internal affairs of the whole country. In other words, Nicodemus is not just a minor figure who turns up at Jesus' door one evening and knocks on the door and walks in at night. He was, if you like, a senator, a member of the ruling council of the whole country. And we're also told not only was he such a political leader, if you like, of course, religion and politics were sort of blurred in those days in Israel, but a man of authority, of governing rulership. Not only that, he was also an eminent teacher, We're told that he was the teacher of Israel, um, verse 10. That is, we might say he was not just any old professor or any old teacher. He actually had the chair of uh, theology at the University of Jerusalem. He was a big deal. And uh, we know that later in the gospel, we find Nicodemus using this elite position of authority he had first to try to protect Jesus and then uh, after Jesus had died to uh, provide a lot of uh, uh, the sort of traditional uh, burial rites at the time to honor Jesus' death. It's just possible uh, that this same Nicodemus is the Nicodemus recorded in the Talmud later, uh, around A.D. 70, the fall of Jerusalem, as Nicodemus Ben-Gorin, who was described as a disciple of Jesus of great wealth and great piety and survived the destruction of Jerusalem. It's possible it's the same man. It's also possible it wasn't. The Bible itself never explicitly tells us that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus. But the implication of John's gospel is that he did become at least a secret disciple of Christ, still on this ruling council of Israel from which he tried to exert um, sort of protective care for Jesus. This is Nicodemus. Why did this elite scholar the senator come to Jesus. Well, evidently, he came to ask Jesus questions. Jesus was a famous individual. He had uh, cleansed the temple. He made a huge um, impact on Jerusalem. And so Nicodemus comes to ask him questions. And the first is an implied question in verse 2, and it's followed by um, a couple of overt questions in verses 4 and 10. He came at night secretly to find out what Jesus was doing and why Jesus was doing it. Now a member of the ruling council wants to find out what Jesus is up to. 
He recognizes that Jesus is in some way significant, but he does not yet believe. He has questions. He may actually have been trying to see if he could broach some kind of deal with Jesus from the Pharisees. He's one of the Pharisees. Jesus has made this huge impact. He's cleansed the temple. It's created chaos and, and disorder and, and, and a surprise among the ruling elite. And now he's come to him saying... It, 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 potentially to find out whether there's some compromise that could come between Jesus and the Pharisees as Jesus increasingly comes into conflict with them throughout John's gospel. Here early in John's gospel, perhaps Nicodemus representing the ruling council is sort of coming to Jesus and saying, is there a possible deal or compromise on the table? He's a scholar, he's a senator, he's questioning Jesus. And he begins with this implied question, verse 2. He says this, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus on the surface is complimenting Jesus. He's according him the respectful title of Rabbi. Uh, Jesus, uh, we know that you haven't gone to the same university as we have. We know you don't have the same degrees as we have, but... We will accord you a, um, an official position, rabbi. He comes to him, compliments him. He comes at night. Uh, in John's gospel, night is often used in a symbolic way. Obviously, it's literal here. He did come at night. But uh, John, the author of the gospel, emphasizes it to contrast with the light that Nicodemus needs to come into and Jesus urges him to come into in verses 19 to 21 that we'll look at next week. He's come at night, he's a little hidden in the darkness. And there is this implied question for when a learned official, the reverend doctor professor Nicodemus, asks a question of a peasant teacher, Jesus, he will not admit his ignorance. He makes a statement that implies a question. But the real question he's asking is this why are you doing what you're doing? Why have you cleansed the temple? One of the signs that Jesus has done. And Jesus, who we're told in chapter 2, verse 25, knew what was in people, saw beneath the surface bravado to answer the implied question. He read Nicodemus like a book. See, Nicodemus, as so many people today, want to keep Jesus in the safe box of just another religious teacher, equal with all the others. Rabbi, We'll, we'll, we'll bring you into our club. Rabbi, we know you're from God. And Jesus reads him like a book. He answers, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what is this kingdom? A kingdom is where a king rules. So the kingdom of God is where God rules. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's where God rules. And God's kingdom is present in those who submit to Jesus as their king, is established through the death and resurrection of that king, and is perfectly fulfilled in the culmination of that kingdom in the age to come. Now, religious leaders like Nicodemus at the time were expecting the kingdom to be culminated immediately with the Messiah's arrival in a political rule. But Jesus is saying that no one can even see 
meaning enter the kingdom of God unless they receive the new birth or are born again. Some think born again should be translated born from above, but either way, the point is the same. There must be a supernatural new birth, a radical new birth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does this being born again mean? Because in our culture, in America, in the, the Western Christianity from which we are all uh, come from and emerge within, because we're so used to this language of being born again, it carries with it certain associations. For instance, we think of political associations. The born-again Christians voted a certain way. We think of um, denominational associations. Uh, There are the born-again Christians, and then there are just Christians. Uh, We think of certain kinds of Christian, perhaps uh, rather sentimental, or um, emotional, or anti-intellectual. Are those the things that Jesus means? Look at it like this. What does it mean to be born? Does a baby choose to be born? (laughs) To be born, a baby is conceived, and then there is gestation, and then there is birth. No one would say that there are two kinds of people, born people and people people. To be a person is by definition to have been born. Similarly, to be in the kingdom of God at all is to have been born again. That does not mean adopting certain political opinions or belonging to a particular domination any more than being a born person means those things. All people are born by definition. All real Christians are born again by definition. The radical necessity and the extraordinary reality of the new birth. Brothers and sisters, let us not make the gate to enter the kingdom of God higher than Jesus does nor lower than Jesus does. You must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. But you don't have to have a certain opinion or certain style or certain mode of operation. You must be born again, but let us not make it lower than Jesus makes it either. You must be born again, the radical necessity and the extraordinary reality of the new birth. So comes Nicodemus's. Second question, this time more obvious, more overt, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, Nicodemus is objecting to what Jesus is teaching. How is this possible? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb again? Nicodemus is objecting to what Jesus is teaching because for him it's not practically possible. And Jesus answers that we must be born of water 
and spirit. That is his answer to this objection. What does that mean, to be born of water and spirit? Well, some people think it means to be born of um, human birth and spiritual birth. The water is the waters of human uh, birth. Uh, But there's no evidence that uh, at the time that um, way of describing human birth was used, so that seems very unlikely. Some people say that the water and spirit refers to the waters of baptism. You must be baptized and you must also be born again to enter the kingdom of God. But there's no um, discussion here in this passage about baptism, so it is very unlikely that Jesus is referring to baptism here, irrespective of the theological implications of that way of interpreting the text. It's very unlikely this is what Jesus is saying. No, Almost certainly, this is a dual reference to the work of the Spirit of God. So in the Old Testament, the combination between water and being cleansed and the work of the Spirit goes together fairly frequently. For instance, Ezekiel says says this, God speaking through his prophet Ezekiel, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and a new spirit I'll put within you. Both together, meaning the, the water the cleaning, the Spirit's work, as the Bible also says, Spirit and fire, meaning the fiery work of the Spirit. Here, water and Spirit means the, the, the watery work of the Spirit, the cleansing of the Spirit, the deluge of the Spirit, the flood of the Spirit. We must be sprinkled clean by the Spirit, water and Spirit. John Calvin said this, by water therefore is meant simply the inward cleansing and quickening of the Holy Spirit. We must have the cleansing of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, the water and Spirit. Well, how's that the case? I mean, how how do I get my mind around what that means? Well, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, that is human birth. Natural birth happens naturally. Spiritual birth, water and Spirit, the pouring out metaphor of water pouring out in regeneration is from the Spirit. So for instance, the wind blows wherever it wishes and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Well, now in modern meteorology we have a better sense of how wind works, but in those days they had no idea and even today there's something of a mystery to gusts of wind. Similarly, Jesus says, with the Spirit. The Spirit comes and goes and you cannot define the work of the Spirit. In other words, the radical necessity and the extraordinary reality of the new birth can only be spiritually understood. There's a, there's a connecting point here to the metaphor because in, in Greek and in Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. And so Jesus is saying, he's using the same word here. He's saying, look, the way you understand that wind blows, so the spirit blows. And it, it connects in Nicodemus's mind, gradually listens. This spiritually understood necessity of the, of, the, of the new birth and the extraordinary reality of the new birth. Similarly with the spirit. Nicodemus is thinking in literalistic terms. How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus is saying, must be spiritually understood. And today, you see, we also struggle for the same reason. We, we assume that everything we believe must be material. It must be seen or touched or physically felt. And so when someone talks about the new birth, we think it's just hokum, it's nonsense. What does that mean? You can't see that? You can't can't physically tell the difference between someone who's been born again and someone hasn't? 
what is, I can't see that, I can't, I can't taste that, I can't touch that. It's just emotion. But you see, there are many things, like as Jesus uses the analogy of, of, of wind, there are many things in our time today that similarly we, we believe in, we know that we do not have a material grasp of. You say, well, what's that? Well, love, for instance. Love, love is not something purely material, something beyond material. Uh, yet it's real. Or even, for instance, money. Money is uh, something that used to be back in the 1920s or so in Western culture. There was this thing called the gold standard where all of money was based upon a physical amount of gold bars that you had in a bank somewhere. And in theory, at least, you could exchange your paper currency for a physical amount of gold or silver. It was kept somewhere. What well, we left the gold standard a long time ago. And there's no, you can't go to a bank in downtown Wheaton and say, here's my $10. I'd like $10 worth of gold, please. It isn't based anymore on a material reality. It's, it's, it's something else. And yet, I doubt anyone would say that money is not real. Or quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the huge mystery that, that at a quantum level, when a scientist measures something, it actually changes. And, and, and you've you got to sort of get your mind around the craziness of quantum mechanics. There are all these elements of, of reality today that we in our modern world are just beginning to grasp are beyond the material. I think that actually in ages to come, when people look back on the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, when they describe the foolishness of the cultures of our time as we do of cultures in the 19th and 18th and 17th centuries, how could they believe such things? I think that in the future they'll look back on our time and they'll say, how could they have thought that things were only material that actually existed, when at the same time they're in the midst of the greatest information technology revolution that ever happened until then, when information technology, we now realize, is far more than merely material. Every time you get out a phone, there, is, there, is, there, is, there are things that matter that are not made of matter. Jesus says the wind blows wherever it wants and you cannot define it. So it is with the work of the Spirit. In other words, the radical necessity of the new birth and the extraordinary, joyful, beautiful, wondrous, amazing, awesome reality of that new birth is something, Nicodemus, that can only be spiritually understood. It's not about getting back into your mother's womb. It's not about something physical. It's about something spiritual. And you need eyes to see and a heart to believe in order to grasp that. Nicodemus comes to his final question, which is very simply, verse 9, how can these things be? He doesn't get it still. And look how Jesus answered. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, Nicodemus, uh, you who are a senior professor at the University of Jerusalem, you really should know better because the Bible you're teaching actually expresses these things. The very Bible has that quotation from Ezekiel, water and spirit. You should know these things because it's in the Bible that you're, you're, you're preaching. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Now notice that. Isn't it fascinating? Nicodemus began by saying, uh, Jesus, um, I, uh, we are coming to you from the ruling uh, council of the elite body of the whole of Israel. And by the way, I'm a senior professor at the University of Jerusalem. We, uh, the faculty, uh, we, uh, the senators, um, rabbi, we'll call you rabbi. We. It has that note of sort of... Um, Elite's association with the elite club, like a a royal person might say, we are not amused. Well, we will give you the title rabbi, Jesus. And Jesus answers his questions, and now Jesus says, we. The divine Jesus speaks, we. We. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, Nicodemus. You can't pull that elite card on me, Nicodemus. You're talking to the Son of God. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. You know, we've got a pretty important counsel as well, Nicodemus. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So the earthly things here and the heavenly things. Probably what Jesus is saying here is he's referring to the earthly things that he has already told Nicodemus in this discussion. That is, the new birth that we may, you and I, may receive here on earth that Nicodemus has now been offered by Jesus These things that Jesus is telling him are the earthly things. That is, not earthly in the sense of worldly or or, or, or sinful or nefarious or despicable or just mundane, but earthly in the sense of the things that Jesus has already said, the new birth that Jesus has been teaching Nicodemus about. He's not believing that. If you don't accept it, Nicodemus, when I tell you about the new birth, How will you accept it when I tell you about all the glories of heaven and the eternity for ages upon ages that is there for the the beloved followers of mine, says Jesus? How will you accept that if you can't even accept the new birth? Then he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is Jesus referring to his incarnation, of course. He is the incarnate Son of God. So he, we, know what we're talking about, Nicodemus. And then he says, and as Moses, another story that Nicodemus should have known well from the Old Testament, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this extraordinary moment when God's people had sinned, against God and were being judged for their sin and then God provided a merciful redemption, rescue. When they looked at the serpent on the pole, they were healed. And God's people actually had a history of misunderstanding what that meant. And now Jesus is saying, or actually what that really meant is what is going to happen to me. As that serpent was lifted up on the pole, so will the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, lifted up in John's gospel, always referring to the crucifixion, because when you're crucified, you're lifted up. As the, as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And as in the Old Testament, God's people, when they looked at that pole, lifted up, so all those who believe in Jesus, that is his death, 
for the sin of the world, those who believe, they will be healed. They will be saved as well. Ultimately, that's what that story that Moses did is really about. When I die on the cross, Nicodemus, it's about this, says Jesus. And in order to have this new birth, then you need to believe. What this means is that belief for Jesus is not a cursory, disinterested glance at an unimportant and irrelevant fact. Can you put yourself in that story in the Old Testament where there are people dying? They're dying and there's a, there's a, a rescue lifted up on a pole and they said, look at that serpent on the pole and you'll be saved. It's not a, hmm, yeah, I think that exists. It's not, hmm, that's interesting information. If they look, they will not die. So then faith is not a cursory or disinterested glance at an unimportant or relevant fact. Faith is the desperate gaze of a dying man at the only possible means of his rescue. That's what faith is. And if you this morning desire to experience the extraordinary reality of the new birth, you need to look at Jesus' death on the cross with that kind of faith. You need to cry out in your heart saying, Lord, I need to be saved. Not, well, that was interesting. You know, thank you, that was kind of, you know, that was okay. That was good information. No, you need to cry out and say, Jesus, will you save me? And look to him, have faith in him. As the Son is man is lifted up, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is the life of the ages. So the kingdom of darkness, now into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of life, of light, the life of the ages in this kingdom that starts now when you're born again, you accept Jesus as your king, and then continues through physical death into eternity. The life that starts now that is the fullness of life that Jesus in John's gospel is promising those who believe. And that continues for all ages, for all eternity. That's what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. There he is. He's the elite. He's the expert. He's the senator. He's the uh, holder of the chair at the uh, University of Jerusalem. And at this point, he doesn't grasp it. Do you grasp it? Do you grasp the radical necessity of the new birth and its extraordinary reality that can only be spiritually understood and only received through faith in Jesus and Him alone? The radical necessity of the new birth. You say, how do I understand that? Only spiritually. You say, how can I receive that? Only through faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who died on a cross for our sin. So let me ask you this then. Have you been born again? I am not asking whether you vote a certain way. (laughs) 
I'm not asking whether you like a certain kind of music or a certain kind of culture or a certain kind of church or are a part of a particular denomination. Do you have the new birth? Have you entered the kingdom of God? Is Jesus your king? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Not believe he exists, but put your faith in him like a dying man looks to a lifeboat to rescue him. So that you submit to him joyfully that his way is best. Have you been born again? If you have been born again, do you live as if the new birth is radically necessary or only optionally, optionally preferable? When was the last time you invited someone to church to hear about Christ? When was the last time you prayed for someone to be born again? Do you spend more time trying to get good grades or more time trying to get good grades to advance the kingdom? Do you live as if life to the full is only found in the new birth or as if life to the full is found in money and possessions? Do you give to the work of the gospel or do you hoard your money to accumulate wealth in this world? Do you look at Chicagoland and weep for its millions who are not born again? Or do you weep for the wealth that some have and you do not? Do you categorize people by race, color, or class? Or do you categorize people by the Bible's one distinction? Not black or white, not rich or poor, but born again or just born once. Is this new birth something that you believe is radically necessary or merely optionally preferable? If you have been born again, if you accept the radical necessity of the new birth, it's extraordinary reality. It's awesome, beautiful, delightful reality. Means then that you have the life of the ages. You have the life to the full. You have God's spirit. spirit. You are utterly new. You are not necessarily, immediately, utterly mature. But you are new. You haven't met something new or discovered some new information. You are new. It is not a new start or a fresh try. It is an actual spiritual new birth. Your tastes change. Your desires change. You love to read the Bible. You love to be with God's people and worship. You, you, you delight to sing songs to God. You, you forgive others because you're just amazed that anyone forgive you. And of course you forgive others. 
You, you come alive, you have new energy, new, 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 new vigor, new, you, you dream of the advance of the kingdom. That's what you live for because you've experienced it. You want others to experience it. You've tasted the honey of the gospel and it's sweet to you. You move beyond duty to delight, beyond going through the motions to running the race. Beyond being a Nicodemus with questions to a disciple with a life to live to the full. I'm going to pray for us now. If you bow your head with me as we pray, I'm going to pray specifically for those here this morning who have not yet received a new birth as well as for us. Lord, we pray that you would grant you life. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would move among us and respond to the faith of those that you are calling. We pray, Lord, that all of us would live in the light of the radical necessity and the extraordinary reality of the new birth that only you can give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.